On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we welcome Daisy Albert Florin. Daisy attended Dartmouth College and received graduate degrees from Columbia University and Bank Street Graduate School of Education. She is a recipient of the 2016 Catherine Gerfine Writing Fellowship at Sarah Lawrence College and was a 2019-2020 fellow in the Bookends Novel Revision Fellowship. Her debut novel, My Last Innocent Year, is out now. Oh, Daisy. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you. Great to be here. Some books just get you at the right time, the right way, and this was one of those books. I mean, I had just kind of been reading a lot, but wasn't loving anything, and this, oh my gosh, blew me away. Again, right place, right time, just spoke to me so much. So I have so much I want to talk to you about. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Good, good. So tell us a little bit about what this book is about, My Last Innocent Year. My Last Innocent Year is a campus novel, a coming-of-age campus novel. It's set in 1998 on a fictional college campus called Wilder, and the main character, Isabel Rosen, is in her last semester there. Isabel is a bit of an outsider, although she's kind of found her place there now in her final semester. She's from a working class background from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Her father owns an appetizing store, which is a kind of niche Jewish specialty food store. And she's at this kind of posh New Hampshire college studying English. And in her final semester, she has two two encounters with two different men. One is a friend who she has a what I call a non-consensual sexual encounter. And then that kind of propels her in a way into an affair with her married writing professor. So it's a story about, yeah, you know, coming of age set at this very like specific time of when you're about to graduate college and you're standing on the precipice of like, adolescence and adulthood Mm. yeah and then just you know kind of swirling around the campus in the late 1990s yeah Uh, yeah, so that that's that's the setup yeah I mean it's a brilliant setup it's hit so many kind of markers that you just think oh I want to pick up that book but it delivers just beautifully and we'll talk more about your writing process and and revision process as we go but First, I want to talk, you, you, so you really do, you talk about this first encounter that Isabel has with Zeb. I mean, it's happening page one, page two, page three, page four, page five. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is right out of the gates that were put here. But it, it shows us so much about Isabel. And I wanted to read something from page five. I'd wandered into this encounter the way you'd wander into a dark room, with one hand outstretched, feeling your way as you go unable to see what's on the walls or exactly how you might get out. 
which just so perfectly captures what's happening for her. She's kind of feeling her way around, and she knows this man, but she doesn't want to be here, but she is here, and there's so much gray area, and you explore it beautifully with that metaphor, especially. Oh, yeah, thank you for reading. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 gray areas is what I'm really interested in. You know, I think that they say, you know, Meg Wolitzer, who's a great novelist, I heard her say, you know, you don't necessarily write what you know, although maybe you do, but it's, she said, write what you're obsessed with. And mm-hmm. I think this novel kind of was just like all my kind of obsessions. And, and that first encounter that opens the book, yeah, I think there, I've had a lot of women, you know, just say to me, like, there are these encounters that you have in college, high school, out of college, whenever in your life where you're not really sure what to call it. You maybe enter into a situation, sort of game for some things, but maybe not game for everything. And it's only when you're kind of confronted with, oh, this is actually happening right now. You maybe start to have second thoughts. And I think, you know, women are socialized in a way to maybe not always speak up at that moment I think those like moments you know behind the closed door can get can get really sticky and really complicated yeah oh absolutely and it also really tracks with kind of where Isabel is in her life this I mean the title will come back to that too my last innocent year you can tell she is by the end of the book she grows in a way that maybe this encounter would not have happened the same way but at this point in time, it's the only way it could have happened. And I know for me, my senior year of college felt like that too. I mean, it was, you're, you're one foot in both worlds, right? You've navigated all of this time in college with these professors, with these classmates, and yet you're about to go out into something else and you suddenly feel a little unsure of yourself, but you don't know how because you're not out in that world yet. So. You just beautifully captured that. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Isabel herself, the character. What Mm -hmm. inspired her and what challenges did you face when you were writing her? Either one. You know, it's not at all an autobiographical novel, but the process of writing it, you know, just took took so long and we can talk more about that. But I think when I started writing it, you know, she was close to, to me in some ways. If I wanted to write a memoir about my years in college, it would actually be quite boring because, (laughs) you know, these dramatic things didn't really happen to me. It was, you know, it was just a time where impressions were made on me that like stuck, stuck so deeply into me, but I was really just like observing and internalizing and processing so much stuff. So I think Isabel started out a little bit as a way to communicate those impressions that I had. But then over time, she became her own character, who is quite separate from me. I always wanted her to be a bit of an outsider, but someone who could play an insider if she needed to. I think she's done a really good job throughout her time at Wilder to to kind of fit in. But I think she realizes in that last semester, perhaps, like what it's cost her, the things she's had to subsume in order to fit in. And so I see this like last semester as kind of an unraveling, you know, she's a knitter also, but she's sort of unraveling the tightly like woven, you know, to just extend the metaphor, you know, this 
this, you know, persona that she's like crafted for herself. Over these years, right. Yeah. yeah. I, not that I find this necessary, but I, I liked her very much. And I, what I liked about her was her attitude. She didn't seem to give a crap if you liked her or not. She just was, and part of that is a facade, right? She has this as you're t- talking about this tightly woven fabric of who she is here. But also another part of it is that we actually have the narrator, Isabel, who has some distance and compassion and wisdom that maybe protagonist Isabel doesn't have. I want to talk about your choice to do that, and it's so beautifully woven through the story that we get these snippets of there's wisdom, there's something beyond, because it's really... Narrated, am I right, by like 40-year-old? Yes. Yes, yes. When did that come in the process? And what were you trying to to communicate in that, giving her Um, the narrator? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that came right away. Again, it's not autobiographical, but I was writing from the standpoint of being, I, I started writing the book in my early 40s, basically. And... I think so so that came right away. I mean, I think that for for me as a reader, I I wanted to have that that wisdom in in the book. That that was actually just like really interesting to me like how we would look back on our choices. You know, I did start writing the book before me too was a sort of real like cultural moment. I mean, I know it existed for a long time, yes, but before yes. it kind of broke through, I, I started writing it before, you know, Donald Trump, you know, had started to run for president. So, but I was already thinking about, you know, how we looked at things, how we would look at things differently, not just, you know, the nineties versus today, but just sort of like in personally and internally, how do we as grown adult women look back at the choices of our youth? So that was always in the book. Originally, the book had sort of two timelines where I was like alternating between the 90s and kind of a more present current moment where Isabel is interacting. But that ultimately fell away. And I just told the story the other way. I mean, I think that, you know, I wanted to make the point that we survive things. Mm -hmm. We are able to, you know, we're able to get past, you know, the things that happen to us and that we use them in the building blocks of who we become. So I always wanted that voice there and just to have that compassion, you know, for our younger selves and to pass that along. I think that was always really important to me. It's really well done. And I, I, I like to hear that it was from the start, but I can't imagine how you picked through those moments because I'd like to read one on, on just on page 47 when she meets Connolly. Uh, he, he's, it's his first class. And she says, when I was older, I would find men like him too handsome for their own good, striding into bars and conference rooms like mortal gods. But back then, I still believed beauty conferred a kind of moral super- And so... As I watched him walk over to the window, traced the line of his shirt with my eyes to where it disappeared down the back of his pants, I would have followed him anywhere. It is so, I mean, it's just such a fine balance of clearly being young Isabel with with some distance that adult Isabel would have. So beautifully yeah. done. Thank you. Good. Yeah, that those were kind of the, 
those are kind of my favorite parts to write because I don't know, like maybe yeah. I felt like we've learned something in this time on our, on this earth, you know, and uh, you might be just like really seduced by the super hot professor, <laughs> yeah. but you know, as you're a little bit older, you might roll your eyes like, oh gosh, there he goes again. Like, yeah. you know. Oh, that's not going to be worth it. <laughs> take the power back, right? Like we yes. give ourselves back some some of the power that we gave up sort of willingly when we yeah. were younger. And there's another moment, I won't read it, but when she talks about Bo in the future, and I'm like, this is so beautifully done because I know exactly what she's saying here, but it's not this Isabel. So I, I loved that. Did you get a lot of pushback as to how much to include, how much not, you know, how much to take out or did it just work for you? No, I didn't. No, I didn't get any pushback on that. I mean, I think that when I was trying to incorporate the two timelines, then kind was. of like I was sort of imagining like the before, before sunset, there's the trilogy before sunrise, yep. before sunset, and then before midnight and before sunset, which is the the second one is kind of my favorite because it's like the achiest and they kind mm. of, you know, the two characters, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy kind of come together again and sort of look back on what they had gone through as younger people. So I'd sort of imagined um, Isabel and Connolly perhaps having a conversation like that. And I wrote at that for like a year, two years, I had a whole other section. So I think that where that, when that came out, that just, just remained like kind of enough. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Talking again about the gray area and, and about womanhood and also the way you tie it to consent. I'd like to read a piece from the end of the book, but no spoilers. What made a girl a woman? Through what mechanism did we pass from one state to another? Had I become a woman the day my mother got sick or the day she died? When I came to Wilder or when I met Connolly? Did it happen that night in Zev's room, or was it happening right now in front of Fairweather Hall as the sun rose higher in the sky? In just a few moments, it would begin as its imperceptible descent. I always thought there would be boundaries or milestones, something to mark the transition, but I was beginning to think the process wasn't binary, that like consent, it existed somewhere along a vast continuum. I mean, that just blew my mind in, in several ways. It's one of those things that you read it and it you know it's true but it's also kind of like the more you think about it it's slippery and you're like what wait what which where am I on this continuum and what does it really mean we never though you said it very clearly and I think readers will be clear about whether the situation between Zeb and Isabel was consensual in the book she's never she kind of goes through a gamut of emotions right she is First, she just kind of wants to block it out, and then she's angry, and she has pity, and then she lashes out. There's a lot of different things happening there. Gayness, she feels like not good about it. We know that right from the start. But I wondered if you got, did you ever have, want it to be clear, like this is what happened, and it was wrong, and this is what I should do about it, or or even she could have gone the other direction and blocked it out completely and just said, I don't want to talk about it. But she does kind of go through things. And I wanted to know more about your decision to get her there. Yeah, you know, that scene with Zev, you know, in the writing process, there were always these two, these two men, there was always Zev and there was always Connolly. And I wasn't really sure how those two encounters were talking to each other until really late. And I'm, and I'm, there's something about it that I can't quite still artic 
articulate. But I think that in that first scene with Zeb, which is actually the opening scene of the novel, but wasn't originally. That scene was always kind of in the book, but it like kind of moved around in different places. And it was really once a really wise Susie Merrill, who I was working with, was like, I think it should just be at the beginning. And that just kind of like unlocked the whole thing. Like after that, it was like the book kind of came together for me, which is all of which to say is I was kind of like stupid about my mm-hmm. own work like I was like oh okay I didn't really even understand that but oh it's so hard to see it for ourselves though right yeah 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 close to it why we need really smart readers but I so that scene had I had sort of played with it being a little more violent like Mm -hmm. maybe like leaning more on one side you know you can really like change by taking out one sentence can kind of change the whole thing or adding like one adjective you know could kind of shift the whole thing so it really was like finally modulating it like a like a you know a symphony or something Mm. like what did I want to bring out I mean I think that the question is like whatever Isabel chooses to call it if she calls it rape or doesn't call it rape like what's in it for her right like what what kind of justice was she going to get what was that going to ultimately look like for her and I think those are the things that like women are grappling with all the time like is it worth like really making a big deal about this going to the dean calling the police like what what is what does justice look like for something like that for a situation where you go to a guy's dorm room it's somebody that you've known for a long time or whatever it is and this thing just happens like what do you even do i don't even have an answer for that so yeah i think that's where she's like kind of grappling with it you know and then of course like being able to the way we talked about things in the 90s was just different than the way we're talking about today I don't know that that would change in terms of like justice or what that would ultimately look like but at least there would be more more language around it or more awareness Isabel might have walked into that situation with more awareness than she has or more just like a language to you know to peg to her experience yeah yeah I want to talk about Connolly in this same context, right? Mm -hmm. Because you gave her some important details that put put that encounter or relationship in a different box, right? She is, Isabel is 21, 22, Mm -hmm. clearly an adult of legal age, whatever that really means. Mm -hmm. And she also expressly consents with him. Mm -hmm. He's a teacher and her teacher, so there's power dynamics that make it much grayer. But the whole thing really explores like I think a deeper question of what is this relationship okay what does it do to me what does it you know because it has a far bigger impact on Isabel's entire life than maybe the the non-consensual relationship or moment that she has with Zev and it's like what are the immediate and what are the lasting effects like it just occurred to me that even with consent men relationships they can take more than you think you are consenting to and they can leave you feeling not as good as you thought so I don't it it just gives consent a whole different meaning like when you consent what are you really agreeing to and what will this relationship do to you and I just thought that was so beautifully explored because in some ways she can actually dispose of what happened with Zev easier Mm -hmm. than she can Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. what what happens with Connolly. So 
I wanted to talk about that. And was that something you were trying to highlight, uh, that difference? And, and what does it really mean? Because the, the express consent with Connolly is, is clear. Is, mm-hmm. It's clear. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she knew what she was getting into. I think that's really well put. Exactly. Like, do we know what we're consenting to? I, I mean, the book takes place in 1998. So the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton, which actually I don't want to call it her scandal because it's his scandal. Yes. But that was also taking place. And I think she certainly consented. She said at the time that she consented, she will still say, you know, that she did consent, but exactly. She did not know what she was consenting to. And I think that the power imbalance is is a big thing. And just even, you know, the things that happen to us when we're like 18, 19, 20, 21, those are, whatever they are, they're so indelible to us more yeah. than the things that happen to us when we're 41, 42, 43, you know, like five yeah. years can go by. And I'm like, what happened in those five years? But like those <laughs> yeah. like four years of college or so, I just can't, you know, there's so much that I remember about them. And I don't even know why I think there was maybe something with like plasticity in the brain. So so just even the age differential, forgetting all the other power differentials, I think, sets up that relationship to be to have an unequal basis. But yeah. she does consent. She's not a child. And I think he maybe is using those levers to kind of protect himself. But I think at the, at the end of the day, not to, you know, give anything away, but I think she gets something out of this relationship as well. I think it becomes part of the build, you know, part of her architecture, you know, is that she had this relationship and it maybe doesn't damage her as much as, you know, I don't know, or she's not sure how much damage is really brought. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think you show in both scenarios where there's no consent and where there is consent, it's not all one thing. There's good that comes out of it and there's bad that comes out of it. And so it consent isn't, is, is still really important, but you know, I wish it, gave more power to like it doesn't wipe away regret or yeah. wishing you had done something differently or wishing you know any of that is is still kind of loaded in the relationship and, and right. I think that that just like going back to it being like that final semester of college and you know it's like I was sort of interested in like what does it mean to be an adult and what does it mean to like be still a child and she's sort of hoping that these adults around her have answers have knowledge yeah. that yeah. she does not have that she will now get in some way and it's like that's where the loss of innocence comes in understanding that there is no line that separates yeah. consensual from non-consensual childhood from adulthood it's just like we're just all in a you know in <laughs> gray mess, you know yeah like you said a vast continuum and it's yeah. it's true there's you want there to be and sometimes there are actually clear markers you know yeah. there's a legal age but it doesn't mean what what we want it to mean and by the way that's different for everyone someone yeah. may be more mature at a certain age and less mature at another age i mean it seems he's much older, but he's not much more mature than she no, is. So right, he's not making good decisions either. Yeah. Right. So this book has some low-key amazing life advice in it as well, <laughs> kind of buried in there. The Wilder poster. This is don't make permanent decisions to cope with temporary feelings. 
Loved that. And then there's also the moment when Isabel is talking to her dad and he's talking or she's asking about mistakes. And this is just this really stayed with me. And he says, here's what I do when I think I've made a mistake. First, I ask myself if it's something I can fix. And if it's not, I ask if it's something I can live with. She says, and what if it isn't something you can live with? Then I go back and ask myself the first question again. Ah, <laughs> oh, that is so good. I, and how did you include that? Is this something you live your life by? <laughs> it's, it's so funny because I kind of, I don't know, I wrote that. And then I was like, does that make sense? Like, I actually read it to my husband. I was like, does that actually make sense? I mean, because I'd never really, I'd actually never, I don't think I've never thought of that before. I mean, that came, you know, that came late in the process, sort of when I had lived with Abe, who's Isabel's father, I'd lived with him as a character for so long. And I just felt like I really knew him and understood him. So in that way, I was able to like, he's someone who owns a store and has owned a store his entire life. He, you know, he worked in the store as a teenager. He didn't go to college. He didn't really have a lot of choices to make. And he just worked in this store. And at some point I say, you know, that he opened the store and closed the store every day and then opened it and closed it again and just keeps a record of what he sells and what he takes in. And that kind of certainty in your life, you know, Mm -hmm. that can offer a kind of structure and certainty to him that Isabel needs and isn't really getting at Wilder where there's so much more like all this murky territory this like intellectual life of the mind that feels really disconnected for her so I just like the idea that she had this father who was from another world another who thought about the world in a different way and also I think like we do we kind of discount our parents in these years that we're sort of like coming into our own, you know, mom and dad are so stupid and they have nothing to teach me. And I'm going to like, I want to learn about the world from, you know, all these other more interesting people. And then maybe you come (laughs) around again and realize, you know, of course they did have a lot of wisdom to give you. But it's part of the breaking away process, right? It is just part of the process. Yeah. We have to do that. So yeah, that was just, you know, one of those lines that comes to you and you're like, you're like, did it make sense? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think so. I think it's a perfect recipe for you either have to be able to do something about it. And if you can't, Mm -hmm. then you have to make peace with it. And those are basically your only two options. If you don't want to just ignore it, which certainly is not Isabel's journey in this Mm -hmm. book, which is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Talked about her dad. There's also a lot of her mom and she's, her mom has passed by this time that we're living in Wilder, but she has really made, she carries her with, Isabel carries her mom with her a lot. And at times, and again, this is the age, she sees her as really separate. There's a beautiful line on page 150. She says, I told him I'd never thought I could be an artist like her because the ways we perceived the world were fundamentally different. She saw things with her eyes while I felt them through the thrift through the thin skin of my heart, which is just beautiful. But again, she sees her as separate at this point in time, but I feel like by the end, there's so much more similarity in who she becomes. And while shaped by this encounter with Connolly, it feels almost like she's becoming her mother 
in certain ways. And so what did you want to explore there with, with her, her mother, who's an artist? Yeah, I mean, her mother evolved over time. I mean, so she has this father who owns this store, and then she has a mother who is an artist, a painter, and... So different. So different, and I actually... And they're always so different, Yeah, talking yeah. about, like, what they, how they would parent her. She reads, no, she reads too much. No, she reads the wrong things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. great. Yeah, and then Isabel's an only child, so she's sort of like carrying both of them inside her. She has this, I mean, I think Isabel feels like she's maybe not a creative person because she doesn't identify with the way her mother is creative. And her mother is like this painter who will spend the whole day, like sort of lose track of time and, you know, just be like spend the whole day in front of the canvas and paint spattered and so Isabel has that as a model of what like a real creative person looks like and then her father who's like working in the store with an apron on slicing cheese he Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like a creative person but she sort of has a little bit of both Both. you know she's a creative person in a different way but like she also can like live in the world and like understands you know that money how money you know, like impacts us and that we need to like know how to pay our rent and all of those things. So yeah, I think, and and also this idea that her, her mother made looking like, like being a creative person look extremely painful, you know, and that I was sort of like, I'd sort of heard that over my life, you know, it's like, oh, you know, like we sit down at the keyboard and like we bleed and it's like art is pain and like art is like a war and a battle. And it's like, oh, well, what if it's not? Like, what if we actually like enjoy it and it's like pleasurable? I think that speaking personally, I always felt like, oh, well, then I'm not really an artist. I'm not really a creative right, person. doing something wrong. Yeah, I'm doing something wrong because like I can actually like, pick up my kids on time. I'm not like, you know, late all the time and can't like balance a checkbook. Like, oh no, I can do all those things. So I think I thought of myself as not a creative person because of that. So I I think that was just something like I wanted to grapple with. And also this thing that is, she, Isabel does talk about in the book where it's like, there are men, you know, who sometimes like talk about writing, you know, as is like this really difficult, like, you know, these like battle metaphors. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. And I do think for me that always felt like, oh, that's not, that world is not for me, that there was something very like exclusionary about that. And Mm -hmm. I have since, you know, come to feel about, feel very differently about that. So I kind of wanted to include that in the novel too yeah and Isabel this is this is a way that she means maintains consistency she doesn't which I won't spoil but yeah through the end I mean she really is coming from a place that she just accesses the art mm-hmm. and it's not this painful you know mm-hmm. I you have to get lost in yourself or in alcohol or whatever it is mm-hmm. to to access it and she stays consistent there the journey more more for her is her embracing it and her Mm -hmm. not questioning it anymore I want to talk about the title of this book because it is so perfect when did it come about in the process was did you land on it did someone else know exactly what it should be talk about that so I came up with the title like fairly early I don't know within a 
I don't know, a year, like that feels early, a year or two of starting like fiddling around with the book there. It's actually comes from a song. There's a, there's a great singer songwriter named Jonathan Brooke. And I always describe there's like a micro generation of like what college women from the nineties who loved Jonathan Brooke. She had a duo called the story, which they had in a couple of albums. And then Jonathan, who's still making music today, went off on her own. And so she has a song called last innocent year and somehow like that just came I don't know it just came into my head and so I just put it there it's like okay this will be the title maybe it'll change maybe I'll come up with something else and it just stuck there and it just stayed and then I submitted it to agents with that title and one one aid no wasn't I don't know someone at one point was like maybe we should look at the title but nobody else really and I didn't, you know, that was not the agent or editor that I that I ended up working with. But I did bring it up kind of with my editor at some point, like, do we want to revisit the title? Yeah. 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 I mean, so it just kind of stayed. There was nothing else that kind of took its place. And and I think like, oh, it, I mean, I find it, I really like the title. I think anything with last in it sounds yeah. like really compelling and provocative, you know, because we always like, you know, things like are about to come to an end. You know, there's like a lot of drama around something being the last, you know, like the last samurai or I don't know, the last summer you're going to, you know, the last week of summer vacation or something like that. So there's that like liminality about it that I liked. But also in the context of this story, you don't know it's her last year until it gives, it, it kind of foreshadows that distance that narrative distance that we get from mm-hmm. the older Isabel who's actually telling the story and it's only in hindsight can she know this was her last innocent year so it's, it's yeah. just perfect I love that good yeah no I, so I also want to talk about revision because I saw that on TikTok that you mm-hmm. have been working with this draft from 2015 to 2022 mm-hmm. I wanted to know what was your pro- you you were very fortunate but also obviously skilled to get some clear votes of encouragement so these fellowships a lot of the the things that you prestigious awards kind of things so that obviously helped you going but how what is your process of revising how many people do you let into that process how do you take that feedback in and make it your own and how do you keep going Yeah. So yeah, I started like the idea of writing a novel with these just these two characters, Isabel and Connolly, just kind of talking to each other. They kind of came to me in, you know, in a writer's retreat I was on in 2015. And then I just kind of kept working with them. And I think just I was like, what kept me going was just I just was really obsessed with this this story. And I just wanted to like keep following it. You know, then there was um like I was talking before, like Trump and Me Too and all of these kind of cultural things that sort of were like pushing on me that were making me feel like, oh, this story actually is, feels really relevant and people might want to read it. Like, but it was more like it was propelling me forward and making me think more deeply about these themes. So I just kept going and I have absolutely no explanation (laughs) why there's like no proof in my life that I like have could ever do that and just keep going. I sometimes say it's like 
a little bit like religion and I'm not religious, but like just a faith and a belief in something that you can't see and you can't touch and you have no proof that it exists. That's sort of how I felt about this book. I just kept going. I had, you know, really supportive. My husband was super supportive and I just kept going and following my gut with things. In terms of letting people read it, I was a little bit like stingy about that. I think just because there were certain people that I let read it. But actually, after a while, I felt like, I don't know, I didn't really, I wasn't asking a ton of people for their advice because I don't know. I just was like, I need to figure this out myself. And mm. I felt like I could figure it out myself. Yes. But the the there was a writer I worked with, Marion Thurm, through Sarah Lawrence and the Catherine Gerfine. Oh, she was my so, mentor at Yale, the Yale Summer oh, Workshop. Yes. That's so wild. Yes. So Marion Thurm was like, she came She's amazing. very amazing and amazing. just an amazing like spirit and energy and she came quite early and she really knows like how to just be a working writer and how to just like get the work done you know she's just like you know she raised two kids and was taking care of her you know elderly parents when i met her and was just like getting her work done and doing the work that it took to get you know, and she publishes all the time. So she came in sort of early. She was reading my like early pages in like 2015, 2016, and just was like telling me to just keep going and pointing out things that were great. And that was really all I needed at that point, you know, just like, this is good. You're a good writer. You can do this. She's like, you need to make your characters more difficult. You, you know, people are really impossible and you got to really just create more conflict is what she was telling me. So that went a long way and then later in the process like 2019 to 2020 when i was working in this program called bookends which is a kind of like a novel incubator program for lack of a better word like people who are working on full novels because it comes a point where it's hard to workshop a novel because it's so long and Mm -hmm. you want people to be able to read the whole thing i was doing workshops where people would read like 10 pages or 12 pages or And it's like, like yeah. it doesn't really, I felt like I could hide too much, right? It was like, no, there are so many flaws. I need you to read the whole thing. So bookends, I worked with a couple of great writers who were in my pod of other you know, fellow writers. And then I worked with Susie Merrill in the like spring to summer of 2020. And that was when the book, like that was actually when I kind of finished the book. So it's coming out in 2023. So it sounds like a terribly long time since 2015, but the book was actually kind of finished in 2020. But then the whole, you know, getting publishing an process, yes. it, and the publishing process is kind yeah. of slow. So yeah. I don't know. It just kind of worked out. I think that sometimes people, I think, get too many readers on a thing. And if you're asking for a lot of help, sometimes I think like you're, you want you, we want other people to fix our problems. That's like just what we want. I <laughs> Human nature. Yeah. Fix my problems. But, you know, yeah. sometimes that is just a way of stalling the work that you maybe know needs to be done. Yeah. Or, or worse, you could actually yeah. get lost in the work, right? You can, yes. You can yes. go down a, a path that sounds good, but really isn't the story you want to tell or isn't how yes. you want to tell it or what have you. Sure. It is true. And I think all people are really looking for is that early encouragement and mm-hmm. just keep going. Now, it's up to you to keep going, but yeah. you kind of do want that that little... Yeah. Yeah, that little nod. Yeah, I have this. Yeah, sorry. Marion gave that to me too. She was so wonderful. And I I presented a short story and I was like, do you think I could make this into a novel? And she was like, absolutely. 
She's so wonderful. She is wonderful. Yeah. I think that, like, I, I written about this, like, writing a novel is like running a marathon, even though I've never run a marathon and I will never run a marathon. It's like, you, you are the only one who can actually power yourself to the end. But like, there are always people on the sidelines, like cheering you on, handing you an orange slice, handing you a little yes. like cup of water. Yeah. And you need those things, you know, yes. you, but you know, and, and you, but it's like, oh, you have to be so careful because you could get the wrong voice in your ear and that can, you know, you can lose a lot of time to listening to the wrong voice but sometimes you have to listen to that voice to like try that thing out and then it's all just part of the process and the process is very long yeah yeah and if you can kind of have that patience you know and 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 your life can sustain it you know the the more time you take is only going to be to your benefit yes oh yeah that's true the other thing is about taking in those voices later if you're more sure of the story that you're telling, it's easier to decipher. Like, this is just someone's personal preference. That's not going to work for me. So Yes, in that, like, very, like, embryonic stage where you're just trying, you know, you have that little flame, and someone can just, like, really easily blow it out. But once your, like, fire's going, you know, it could stand a little breeze. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the key is knowing where you are. And there's not a lot of guidance for that, I found. I've been on a writing journey for a long time, too. And it's, there's not a lot of guidance for you're just looking for the positive. Now I'm really good about if I'm in a writing workshop, I have a writing group, a small writing group that we're, we exchange pages. If I'm really in the early in the process, I'm like, I just want good right now. I don't need anything constructive. And you'll find that, especially in writers, if you don't say that, I had a, a, a mm-hmm. one of the women submitted new pages and I didn't know there were new pages and we were all, none of us knew there were brand new pages and we were all like really nitpicking. And I was like, yeah. oh no, this is not the level that we should be talking about new pages. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I think that is like, a, I have given the book, you know, like I gave the, the book to my father at one point when it was done. And I said to him, only compliments. Yes. That's it. Yes. You know, I'm not really interested. That's where we are. <laughs> yeah. Just compliments, you know. And I think you can completely set those guidelines when you're asking for feedback. You know? And other writers are very open to them. I mean, I don't want I want to be helpful to you yes. as a writer. And, and if also what, yeah. yeah. And it's like, we're already pretty attuned to what we're doing wrong. That's like, mm-hmm. our inner critic is like talking to us about that all the time. So we don't really need a flashlight shown on those things. We're not right. as good at seeing what we're doing well. Yes. Oh, ab- oh please. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So I want to wrap with, what is your astrological sign? Do you okay. know it? Yeah, it's Taurus. Okay. And do you yes. relate to being a Taurus at all? Not, I no, not, no. I, I don't know. I used to like look at that stuff. I'm supposed to be the bull and kind of like stubborn. I don't really think that I am, but I am. I think that the that Taurus are kind of comfort seeking and kind of like earthy. And I am yes. definitely comfort seeking. Home. Um, Home, is Home a big, yes. yeah, not yeah. a big like risky like yeah. no all of that, but no yeah. no drastic changes out of nowhere. If you make a drastic change, you've thought about it for some time. Definitely, yes, yes, I think that is definitely true. And then the last question is, what are you loving right now? Any books that you're reading, TV shows you're watching, movies, anything that you're obsessed with? Which because like you've said already, the following your obsession can never lead you astray that is always the right thing to do 
Okay, so just off the bat, I just watched the movie Tar, talking yes. about complicated women, and I really, really enjoyed that. I felt like it was like reading a literary novel. It was... It was a difficult film. It was slow at the beginning. I could see people kind of giving up on it, but I really enjoyed it. And I thought... Me, is that Kate Blanchett? Kate Blanchett. Yes. yes. She's yes. this conductor. It's, yes. It's like, it's long. And and actually, it has these moments where they don't. certain things are cut away. Like, you don't see every scene played out on camera so your mm. mind has to like make these leaps of yeah. like what just happened and what just happened and her performance is incredible so i really recommend that and i just read the arc of a book a friend of mine wrote her name is laura belgray and it's a memoir in essays and the book is called tough titties oh, and i, love that. I <laughs> highly recommend it yeah. i read it in a day and it's a book of essays it's called the subtitle is on living your best life when you're on living your best life when you're the effing worst. And she <laughs> talks about like kind of these mistakes she made along the way and all these like she felt sort of like a loser her whole life a little bit, but now she realizes that like those parts of her that felt like a loser were actually her superpowers mm. and she's been able to create the life she wants. And it's a great book of essays, very Gen X, a lot of like 80s and 90s references. So I just read that as well. Oh, so I, I love that. that. I love that. Wait, I said last question, but my real last question is, did you like pass out when you saw Curtis Sittenfeld's review of your book? I mean, yeah. I almost passed out and <laughs> it's not yeah. my book. Yeah, I mean, Curtis Sittenfeld is obviously like a huge, you know, like oh, she's influence. Yeah, I think like I can remember reading Prep and I've read almost everything she's right read, here. written. It's right yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, Dying for a Romantic Comedy that's coming out in April. And yeah, she was just super generous to to tweet about that. And this is sort of how my life like feels these days where I'm just like sitting in my house, like eating a soft boiled egg and like my phone buzzes and it's like, Curtis Inville tweeted about your book. And then like my whole day just kind of like- Gets lost in that. Yeah, whatever I was like planning to do productively that day kind of falls apart, but I'm super happy about that. And that, that really meant a lot to me. It, that is fantastic. I, she's incredible. But you've gotten so I mean, your blurbs are just like one after the other of, it's so funny, Joanna, who's we love here too. Yes. On the cover of my arc, it says remarkable, unputdownable, brilliant. And I really was like, come on, really? And as I was reading it, I'm like, no, wait, those are the perfect three words. It is so, those, those are the only words. That's it. Thank you. So. Joanna Rakoff has been like a huge a support, like supporter of the book. And I didn't even she know her. Um, and she was a great reader. Yeah, I, I, I'm super happy that the people who like, I feel like I wrote the book for like, I mean, anyone can read it for mm -hmm. sure. But there's like, you know, people in my kind of general age range and life experience have really like really responded to it. And so I can't, you know, the including word, you and I appreciate yeah, that. So much. The word I think of so much as it relates to Isabel and also to me as a reader is imprint. It's mm -hmm. it like really, it leaves a mark on you and mm -hmm. in a really good way and not a scar, not, it's just an imprint, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it's so wonderful. I really, I, I think I DM'd you right after I finished. I was so like stunned at 
because actually it's a literary novel it's beautiful but there's a lot that happens and by the end the way you ended it was so perfect and I was stunned in the best way I'm like this is leaving a mark on me oh I'm so glad to hear that yeah that means so much thank you good and then tell people where they can find you where you're active if at all I feel like more people are like no not really on social media website whatever it is well yeah well my website is daisyflorin.com and I'm on Instagram is probably my most active and I'm like Daisy I think I'm Daisy Florin or Daisy underscore Florin and I'm also on Twitter which I think is Daisy underscore Florin and if you go to my website you could sign up for my newsletter which comes out I don't know. I try and do it every Friday, but sometimes I skip a Friday. And my newsletter on Substack is called Girls with Feelings. Um, and you can find it through my website. So, And on your website is also an amazing playlist of 90s music, 80s, 90s music. That's so good. Yeah. That That is probably a perfect companion to this book. I didn't find it until after I was done, but... such good stuff on that was really fun to do yeah I put together a playlist yeah like mostly 90s songs that you might have heard if you want someone I went to college with was like oh I feel like I'm walking around Fairweather and everybody's door is open and I'm listening to all their music which was a great compliment and then just a couple of more modern songs that just kind of inspired me or had the vibe I was looking for I think there's a Taylor Swift on there right yeah there are definitely yes Yes. I think there are maybe a couple I have my daughter is a massive swifty and i am too yes yeah i will claim that same same here yeah Um, and there's also resources for book clubs and ways to get in touch with you and all that stuff on there yes on my website yes yeah yeah reach out yeah good 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 thanks daisy so much oh thank you corinne it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me awesome This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen.com or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.